0: Rewinding. Rewinding. Rewinding Kaya FM on FM Rewind. The
1: Law Report with Michael Matuining-Bill.
2: Kaya FM 95.9. Welcome to The Law Report. My name is Michael Matwinning bill What are we talking about today? We're talking about strikes. We're talking about labor law. We're talking about whether an employee has a duty to snitch on the fellow employee. That's the show tonight. And as always, you can give us a call by dialing the number 86 959 or you can tweet me. I'm at Matoining Bill. That's my Twitter handle. That's The Law Report. Know your rights. Know the law. The Law Report with Michael Matoining Bill. We're talking strikes this evening, and let me first welcome uh, my guest. I'm talking to an industrial relations specialist, uh, Mr. Teboko Dr. Uh, uh, Teboho, Good evening, and thank you so much for joining us. Good evening, Michael. Um, I'm happy to be here. And uh, as well as uh, Ms. Giandi, uh, uh, Giandi uh, Leone, a commercial manager at Workforce Stuffing. Thank you so much for joining us, Yandi.
3: Thank you very much.
2: And later on, we're going to be joined by uh, an economist because... because You know, matters of economics do become important for the purpose of our conversation tonight because we're talking about something that depending on which side you're coming from, you have a different view about it. We're talking about strikes in the context of labor law. You'll know that if you are the one that wants an increase or wants to get some advantage from the employer, you think strikes are a good idea. But if you're on the other side and you call the shots, you're the employer, you think it's not a good idea and... And one often hears very convincing reasons on why strikes are not good for the economy, how the number of strikes that we have as a country um, um, probably dissuade potential uh, investment and foreign direct investment because of the what is then described as the volatile labor market in, in, in South Africa. That's a very interesting thing. And, and as you know, strikes have got a very important and unique history in this country in particular, um, uh, uh, uh so, so, you know, on the one hand, one wonders whether, you know, when you hear that so-and-so is going to strike and this service is going to be affected, we know the panic that then comes and we know that the long processes that unfold. So that's what we're talking about. Uh, so do give us a call. If you have any questions for any of my guests, the number to dial is 86 0 um, And we certainly do look forward to... To, to engaging. And I think I want to start here. Before we talk about the case that actually is the reason why we're having this discussion um, or even this topic this evening around the duty to snitch, you can imagine you're going on, you're striking and there's 200, 300 of you there during the strike and suddenly somebody's car is vandalized and suddenly there's a petrol bomb somewhere there and you part of that. Can you? Do you have a duty to, to snitch? um and say to your employer you know i know who who, who petrol bombed that car or whatever the case might be that's what we're talking about if you want to find out the answer to that um do stay tuned now let's talk about uh, strikes and, and allow me to start with you um uh, when can i strike as an employee? in other words um, um are strikes legal and if so when do they become legal versus not legal
3: um, so the right to strike is entrenched first and foremost in um, our constitution. So it's a constitutional right for employees to strike and the um, the root of the right to strike um, basically lies in the um, inequality that's inherent to an employer-employee relationship. Um, Uh, it's obvious that uh, any employment relationship has a certain hierarchy so you've got your seniors you've got your subordinates and most of the time your subordinates will not be in an equal bargaining position so that creates the need the absolute necessity for effective collective bargaining and our right to strike is part of that Um, underlying that um, in addition is section um, 64 of the Labour Relations Act, mm. which um, provides employees with the right to strike, and also um, gives employers a recourse um, in in um, events of strike, whereby they can lock out um, the
2: employees. And and that's something that one hardly hears of this issue of a lockout. Correct. So an employee has the power to uh, strike. But an employer also has a power to lock out, and and something very seldomly spoken about. In fact, something very seldomly done. I can think of very few instances where an employer says, "I'm going to lock you out," and I, and I think it'd be a very, um, it's very necessary that we talk about it sometime during the course of the show. Let me welcome uh, my third guest, uh, Ms. Pili Sanguomo. um Ms. Pili, Sa, uh, good evening, and okay. nice to see you. Yes, <laughs> uh, she's our independent economist, and uh, she's going to be sharing with us. Some of the issues around strikes, we know that strikes do not happen um, in a vacuum. They happen in a context of some societal issues. Let me turn to you, uh, Deboko, and talk about, you know, we we, 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 you you, only explained to us where the right to strike is founded. Now, my interest and my curiosity is when can I actually strike? When does my strike actually become a protected strike? All right. So it's,
1: it's embedded first in the definition mm-hmm. of what is a strike. So, uh, by definition, a, sh- a strike is a, uh, a partial, a complete um, a refusal to work, um, uh, whether retardation or a full obstruction
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, to work um, for an employer or more than one employer. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the aim of remedying either a grievance or an, 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 isu- an issue of mutual interest mm. uh, but it refers to persons it doesn't speak to an employee but it speaks to more than one employee mm. so if you don't fall within the definition you, mm. you you won't be able to strike indeed so for example if the worker wants to strike on his own mm. that's not possible because you need to fall within the definition now the second part is like you you mentioned unprotected strikes and unprotected strikes mm. so you need for your strike to be protected you start first at the ccma you need to refer a dispute to say, listen, um, there's a matter of mutual interest that uh, perhaps we need to uh, deal with. Then the CCMA will set the matter down for a conciliation. So once the matter is set down for conciliation, a certificate can be given if the matter is not resolved. So what happens in conciliation is that we'll sit down and discuss and try to find ways and means in which we can resolve the dispute. But if we fail, then a the certificate is issued whereby um, the employees can go on strike, but they need to give 48 hours notice to the employer that they're doing so. Although uh, there's changes to the Relations Act, of course, uh, which have come about recently in this year. So what that would mean is that with the amendments, there needs to be picketing rules that are established before the strike commences. Mm-hmm. And there's a secret ballot uh, issue as well, which has perhaps uh, come about, although uh, there's arguments around it, but it's not necessarily mandatory. Mm-hmm. All right. So once that is done, um, once you've complied with all of those regulations, then you have a protected strike, then you're immune. You can strike as much as you want to do whatever do a bride Do a go slow Do whatever you want to do mm-hmm. As long as you give your 48 hours notice If you're you a very smart You're know, official You do it on a, on a Friday Knowing that it's a weekend And you strike on Monday Now um, uh, If you fail um, to follow that kind of process, it becomes an unprotected strike, whereby you as an employer, you need to follow certain processes mm-hmm. in the sense of uh, giving ultimatums, uh, ensuring that or advising employees to return to work. So it's not a knee-jerk reaction of saying, uh, I'll, I'll dismiss you because your strike is unprotected. There's provisions in the Labor Relations
2: Act in how you deal with an unprotected strike.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So pretty much that's the two-go. I, I want to interrogate those provisions deeper. Um, but if you've just tuned in, we're talking about strikes. We're talking about your right to strike. When is a strike protected? When is it not protected? But more, more interesting is a development um, that happened in the constitutional court this week um, about the issue of the duty to snitch on your fellow employees. That's what we're talking about. If you want to know more about that, do stay tuned in. But if you have any questions relating to strikes, labor issues, do give us a ring 086 Now, Ms. Ngoma, I want to turn to you and perhaps consider this from an economics point of view. We know that depending on which side you're coming from, you have a different view about strikes. But there's a, there's a cause why people strike. And I just wanted to get a sense of where are we um, in terms of salary increments as a country? Are we keeping up with the consumer price index? Are people still able to do the same things with the money they earned last year, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, compared to today?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in fact, interestingly, comparatively speaking, actually, we've had decline in terms of wage, wages if, and, and South Africa and Namibia actually in terms of the international labor relations organization report with, of 2018-2019 reflects that we actually have huge wage inequality in South Africa. Yeah. Which fundamentally, one of the key issues, and I just want to, you know, to digress for a second that, so the wage inequality that you see in labor market is a reflection of both gender inequality, racial inequality in society. So it gets expressed itself in the labor market. Yes. So if I then zoom in straight into the issues raising around the strikes and what are the issues, I think one of the. Issues that particularly the labour movement, I think, um, have been raising, is the fact that you have a group of vulnerable workers, for example, who work long hours, who are highly, who are uh, highly under underpaid, but also we have actually because of disparities in the, in the in the labour market, you also have senior executives uh, who happen to be white and sometimes male, who are paid highly. Uh, paid so so that wage gap so it creates a, an industrial tension mm. i think that's that's and that's a first and i think we've seen it in fact in the mining sector i think when once we're starting uh, during the wage labor negotiation period we start getting nervous because you actually know that you're likely to be you have to gear the economy has to gear itself for protected strikes because mm. of par- partly it's it's a historical issue but also we've not been able to I mean to resolve one of the study in fact that was done by um, one of my colleagues actually shows that even though we've seen a rise in terms of cost of living comparatively speaking in south africa and which part of it is actually driven by how our the structural organization of our own economy is that in fact actually a lot, the purchasing power of the currency has actually been declining mm. because it means that, well, firstly, we lead, high, we are actually overprices consumers and workers, but at the same time, it also means that people are not able to actually uh, uh, <coughs> earn, earn, earn a good income, mm. even though they work long hours. So, somebody else will then come and say, oh, no, 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 with the minimum wage, we should be able to do that because it should be one of the key instruments that is managed to stimulate demand in the economy and kind of like kicks up the economy I mean, if you look at the minimum wage and uh, and, and while we can hail it is, as a starting point, but if you look at the cost of living, for example, I mean, you have people who actually have to travel to work yeah. from home they travel about. 10 to about 45 kilometers because we
2: know also the geographical dynamics of, absolutely yeah. exactly
0: and you can't take it out in the equation because mm. the cost of transport is fundamentally linked to cost of living because for people to be able to lead productive lives and interact with labor markets they must be able to take a public transport in the morning and go to work and they spend i mean a good between two and a half sometimes even four thousand right so in essence you can tell already so the cost of transport becomes leakage Actually, in terms of the household income, particularly for poor um, uh, working households and working-class communities.
2: And and you know you you've said a, a mouthful, and I and I and I do want us to explore the the disparities in in both the the, it's the sexes, but also the races. And one of my curiosities is, you know, we obviously have historical baggage. Some things would have kicked off or taken effect some years ago but the curiosity is is this this problem this gap this disparity still happening with new recruits so if i hired a a a white male in 2019 and a a black female in 2019 would it still manifest the disparities that you describe or or is it baggage sort of the stats are derived from something that we inherited so to speak
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you have a combination. I think you you still do. In fact, we've seen a lot of where those wage disparities, particularly in the financial sector, for instance, Mm -hmm. right? But also in other sectors, you've seen, you know, some form of uh, uh, equalization uh, uh, taking place. I think part of it has to do with the public pressure. But of course, profoundly, in areas where you find where workers are highly organized, right, visibly, and they're able to raise their own issues, you do get to see a bit of income equalization, right? But I think the the issue as well within that, uh, uh, you do see a situation where sometimes certain people are expected to, and I think we've seen this a lot in media, so where people, younger people, are actually hired on much more, Lower wages and are expected from a deliverable perspective to deliver uh, 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 um, their workload is actually much higher. So, so in essence, uh, we we still do uh, we still do see that. But I think there's an there's an open pressure. But one of the key things though, which we probably need to look at whether what I mean whether it will pen you know, we'll see some, you know, progress from it. That during the job summit, I think Mm -hmm. the president had acknowledged and apparently there was an open discussion within the closed doors, within the captains of industries around the issue of wage inequality in South Africa and how it perpetuates inequality in fact. Because then in essence if you have the bigger group of people who are taking uh, home less income it actually means that the economy can easily shrunk right mm-hmm. because it means that people are actually uh, demanding less, but also they are channeling some of most of their income into consumption instead of durable goods or. They're having an, an additional income. So I think that it must be something that must remain on the table on an ongoing basis, particularly for the reasons you've highlighted of the historical issues that are related with gender and with race, but as well as with geographic location. You get people who are located in rural areas who are likely probably to be doing the same work. That is done by someone located in urban centers mm. because of power dynamics. You know, that those in the urban centers are able to negotiate better, but those who are in rural areas, because of desperation, they can, in fact, in the equation in South Africa, because we're such a highly industrialized country in the Sadic region, there's an issue around migration, right? Mm. And I think you have seen. The inherent tension. I think it's a global phenomenon. I mean, I think in South Africa we're kind of like waking up to that reality that you do get that industrial tension where you find that migrants are accepting lower wages out of pure of desperation and either based because of their either political or economic conditions in terms of where they come from. Because I can imagine no one would just want to cross the border for the mm-hmm. sake of crossing because they are looking for. So, for example, I mean the the agricultural industry actually tends to attract a lot of migrants, right? Yeah. And it underpays. And if you look at their living conditions and their working conditions. And um, the second one is normally your, your retail sector, right? I think we've seen it in South Africa. Uh, a lot, I mean, if you go to KFC, you get served by more or less almost migrants because you can pick up either from the the accent or sometimes you ask specifically and say, where are you coming from? And somebody will say, I'm com- coming from this country and this country.
2: Here's something that, I've I've always been been curious about. Often you'll hear um, um, s- employers say, so "Take mining for example. Mining is, at least it used to be, one of the you know very key and very important contributors to the South African GDP. It's declining, yes, but they're still an important industry. But it's it's also declining within itself. So mining, we hear arguments that they're becoming less profitable. They have to go deeper, or wider, or whatever the case might be. So it, things are." More and more expensive for them, so so they tell us but then we we know that there was a big issue around strikes and mines. I needn't go to Marigana, but you 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 you, 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 you see where I'm headed mm. there seems to be this tension that as an observer looking in from without you you you, you wouldn't know which side. Makes sense because I, I, it makes perfect sense that a company shouldn't have to run its at a loss just because it has to foot salaries. But in turn, employees shouldn't also have to mm-hmm. um, work fifty years, sixty years, go back home to wherever they come from with nothing mm-hmm. yes. at, at retirement. So it's a very difficult thing. Where, 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 you know. So, so shouldn't the law, the lawyers in this room, for example, shouldn't the debates be more around? Um, you know, how how, how how do you assess this? Because it's it's all just left to the market. So you know, we we the the the, the it's this bargaining power, mutual, uh, issues of mutual interest, where it's a strike and a lockout, but there isn't sort of a guideline to say, you know, you three hundred percent profit versus, uh, you know, unworking life. So I I, I wonder whether is there any sort of legitimate
0: Mm-hmm.
2: complain by employers when they say they can't afford to pay salaries well I mean I think it's, you it's know perhaps way. let me refine the question because mm-hmm. even in my own mind it doesn't sound perfect but are are the economic times in which we find ourselves um, an issue at play yes. other than perhaps what one might be inclined to believe as employers just want to exploit if,
0: I mean in fact it's a good, so the, the issue there and I think if you zoom in for example in the sector where you are I think there's a huge mistrust right yeah and I think that's one of the challenges about wage inequality generally so once you have a high wage inequality you are always going to have mistrust and that inherent tension between employers and employees. So even every time when employers are, are saying, look, we've not been able to make profit, so we're not able to keep you, employers will always say, no, 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 you probably have under-declared, right? Yeah. Or you've kind of like a-, a um,
2: a, But you pay the executives' fat bonuses.
0: Abs- exactly, yeah. that's the first issue. And I think for me, there's also you know, a, a very legitimate demand from the the trade the labor unions where they're arguing and saying actually we want you to be transparent about your financial statements now more often than not workers are not able to read the financial statements so they can't but see. the unions are yes but yes the unions are there but i mean you know sometimes running a mine is such a <laughs> complex operation okay because it has multiple subsidiaries so you can imagine if a shop steward is presented with a financial statement they won't be able to see I, which, I, I, which, I, I which shout, what type you know, what type I, of capital I, I, I that has that, been because sent. there's a
2: line there that says profit and there's a line that says net profit and you're like
0: <laughs> there's also creating accounting there's also creative accounting where people actually under declare their income or also their profits they take it offshore right yeah, but yeah. the point you're making around the
2: yeah let, let, let me just let me just take a call uh, um, and, and like uh, Fanyana you can also give us a call by dialing the number 086 0000959 um, I'm joined in the studio by a senior economist uh, Ms. Pili Sanko she is um, with Threshold Capital. Uh, she's an economic advisor there, as well as Teboho uh, moalusi uh, and uh, Jean Leoni, both from Workforce Stuffing. So if you have any questions, um, or any one of my guests are in a position to take your calls. Uh, Fanyana, thank you so much for calling us. Good evening.
1: Good evening,
2: how are you? I'm fine, and yourself? No,
1: I'm okay, man. Mm. Yeah, I heard your guest are saying Uh, Before you go on strike, you need to ballot, and that thing was still uh, a bill. If it's true, when when did it pass?
2: Yeah, I think. I mean, I'll ask him to clarify, but I think he said that it's something that is still in the card. So he, I don't think he positioned it. I mean, I mean, I mean, he's still here. Uh, we'll maybe explain for yourself, because guy gives us books for uh. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. <laughs> All
1: right. Um, the new legislation came in um, uh, early this year, uh, the Labor Relations Act, or well, perhaps the amendments to the Labor Relations Act. Um, um, in actual fact, um, in terms of 1664, it gives out uh, a process in terms of uh, the secret ballot. But at the end of that uh, process, there's an escape clause for the union whereby it pretty much says, well, the, 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 the trade union can choose um, to perhaps follow this um, secret ballot process in terms of the Labor Relations Act. And therefore, um, it, it's not a must. Uh, the, the, uh, in essence, um, the, the union can choose uh, to either follow the secret ballot or not.
2: Are you sorted, Fanyana?
1: No, I'm not certain. I'm, I'm, I'm unclear. If you can clarify the issue, because you, you, you started saying before you go on strike, you need to pilot. And that thing was still a bill. That's my question. So now, if it has passed, when did it pass? I'm not 100% sure when the Labour Relations Act passed but if I'm not correct it was the beginning of this year it came in at the same time as the National Minimum Wage as well as the Basic Conditions of Employment Act.
2: I so, think we'll take a break and when we come back um, Deboho will just confirm for you. Let's take a break and when we get back we continue our discussion talking about labour law, talking about strikes, talking about your duty towards your employee I mean your employer uh, all of that when we come back. Know your rights, know the law The Law Report with Michael Matwening bill Welcome back to The Law Report with me, Michael Matwening bill I'm joined in the studio by Teboho uh, Mualusi, uh, Jean de Leoni um, Who both are from Workforce Stuffing As well as Ms. Pili Sancoma She's an independent um, economist with threshold capital um, uh, so, like Fanyani, uh, you can also give us a call by dialing the number 86 There is something that is something of a new development this week. Um, do, do you want to maybe uh, deal with Fanyani's qu- uh, uh, query? Yeah. Um, and, oh. then, and then we'll talk about that very interesting case. All right.
1: Uh, Fanyani, indeed, it is the 1st of January uh, 2019. Uh, that's when the amendments were passed. All right. And uh, furthermore, uh, one needs to. Uh, do the secret ballot. There's a recent case which has uh, recently been released uh, for uh, Martha Burr, I think, uh, SA uh, versus Numsa uh, and Fosca, uh, which relates to the same uh, obligation for one to do um, uh, a secret ballot uh,
2: in the process. Yeah. So, Fayana, uh, I hope that helps you. If not, you know, come back and let's, let's settle this once and for all. Um, <laughs> there's a case that happened about the duty of you as an employee to tell your employer if you see something. Tell us about that.
3: So um, this judgment came out a little more than a week ago, um, Dunlop or Noomsa versus Dunlop, where the Constitutional Court actually gave us a bit more clarity and guidance on um, derivative misconduct. So what happened here is that... um, There were a group of employees that went on strike.
1: Um,
3: Certain employees made themselves guilty of misconduct. Other employees were assumed to form part of that misconduct, but they couldn't be individually identified. Mm. But they were subsequently dismissed um, for, for the assumption that they participated
2: in this misconduct. So this is a situation where there's 150 of us, we are on strike, and then a certain number of us amongst the 150 do something, vandalize things, do things that they're not supposed to do.
3: Exactly that. And the
2: employer comes and says, well, I don't know who did it, but I'm going to fire all of you.
3: I'm going to fire all of you unless you come and give me information as to who the culprits were. Right. In other words, um, I need information on who it was and you need to come and exonerate yourself and tell me why, why you feel that you should not be dismissed along with them. So the Constitutional Court found that um, there's not an inherent duty on a so employee. before it
2: got Sorry. to the Constitutional Court, mm. I'm assuming it started somewhere because yes. I know I know these days there's a lot of cases where we're quoting the Constitutional <laughs> Court. They've become extraordinarily busy these days. But it started, I'm assuming, at the CCMA.
3: Correct. So we started at the CCMA. Um, the CCMA found that the dismissals were unfair. Um, Dunlop then um, appealed the matter to the Labor Court where they were successful. NUMSA in, um, in turn appealed to the Labor Appeal Court which upheld the Labor Court's decision and then um, it, it uh, went to the Constitutional Court right. where we then got um, final clarity on, on that. So um, the Constitutional Court actually found that um, the duty to snitch as is commonly known um, in certain circumstances there might be this duty but it shouldn't be used by employers as a a blanket reason to just dismiss um, employees in in groups where you can't um, identify the individuals that's actually uh, making themselves guilty of the misconduct. Hmm. So there's a very specific um, test that you need to apply um, certain hurdles that you need to cross before you can um, dismiss these employees. So the bottom line is that the duty of good faith which um, Dunlop relied on in terms of their employees um, has to work both ways. So you can't expect an employee to give you information um, to protect your business but not giving them something in return. Um, I think it's, it's a common known fact that um, A lot of times the the violence that goes along with these strikes also goes hand in hand with um, intimidation and threats towards non striking employees or employees who don't want to follow the group. So um, in in this specific instance the court found that um, the only reason that Dunlop could have expected the employees to give that information was if Dunlop could guarantee the safety of those employees.
2: So in a nutshell if I'm an employee and you are asking me to snitch on my colleagues that I was striking with, you need to say to me, "All right, if you come and tell me I'm going to protect you this way, and then it's settled. Yes. is that settled? I understood that there were a number of other requirements um before that
3: so you need to you need to firstly determine um uh, if if the group if you could identify who yeah um,
2: so 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 you know uh, so when I, when 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 I s- scheme through it there yeah. seem to you know sort of st- four categories of yes. saying you know and 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 it's exactly against the point that you've mentioned where you say you can't just go to 150 people and mm. say well if come tell me or else i'm going to fire you mm. th- th- you need to satisfy some requirements so the
3: steps are as follows so so in this instance um i'm going to take dunlop as as an example because yeah. that's the the easiest one mm-hmm. um they had to determine firstly were all of the employees present yeah. when the misconduct occurred mm-hmm. secondly um if they were there could they identify the perpetrators the third step would be if they were there and they identified the perpetrators. Did they know that Dunlop needed that specific information? And knowing that, did they withhold that information? Um, for their own gain mm-hmm. or, or to to hide the fact that they are guilty themselves mm-hmm. of, of some of the other misconduct mm-hmm. so so that's that's quite a, a lot of hurdles that you need to cross in order to satisfy this test and um, in this instance the the court found that dunlop did not um, they in fact failed at the first hurdle where they couldn't establish that all of um, the employees were present when the misconduct took place. Mm. Um, in fact, they said that there's only three inferences that you can draw um, from the situation. The first one is that all of them were there. Um, the second one is that none of them were there. And the third one was that some of them were there. And the most probable one is the third option. Some of them were there but there's a, a very big chance that some of them weren't there. Mm. So, so it wouldn't be fair to dismiss them um, if if there's a, a uh, probability that some of them were not party to the misconduct.
2: It, it, it's a, it's. I guess it's it's always going to be a very difficult thing because I can see how a, a union would say, "Hang on, um, you know." I, I, and and I want to share a story. It's, it's an experience I read, I think five or six years ago, where this lady was going to work and not joining the strikers, and they used the train and. the the striking employees went to the train station, pulled her out of the train station and stripped her naked, assaulted her and sent her back home. And whatever media house it was, they took a picture of this and this thing stuck with me um, because I couldn't unsee it. But it was horrific, it was degrading, it was hurtful, even to me as an observer, let alone the person that that, that harm has been inflicted upon. Mm. And then I I had the strong sense that there is a bit of um, um, a need... To, to develop, you know, our law insofar as this issue is concerned, because because strike is a very legitimate um, thing to embark upon, but it can get messy and people can get hurt, and I and I, and, and, and I just want to you know to probe what you make of the ruling, where if there's a strike and I find out that something like that happened at a station in Vereniging, And my employees, you know, so you'd find that a company, um, some people are in Ferenichem, but some people could very well be in Langlachter station. Some people could be in New Canada station and wherever. So I've got employees everywhere as they make their way to the strike. And I'm just wondering how this case would help that situation where the lady says, strikers, this is what happened. It was um, strikers and um, I need help. And can't an employee, you know, how would an employer N- based in Kempton park wherever he- it may be, then deal with this issue of derivative misconduct in in that mm. kind of context so 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 the put therefore is, is this is 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 in your assessment not at all my pro- not not at all my position in your assessment is it a fair duty to place on an on an employer given the very obvious shortcomings that may from time to time happen
3: um I think it is fair mm-hmm. to, to require more of employers, but yeah. I do think from both sides, mm. um, common sense should also prevail sometimes. Yeah. Um, it, it needs to be broader than I want to exercise my right and the employer doesn't want me to exercise my right. Uh, you know, there, there's a saying that says just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And I think from both sides it 's necessary to to um, to engage on ground level to try and and, um, and deal with these issues i mean those are very unfortunate realities and I think that would um, squarely fall within a category that was actually conceded in this um, uh, constitutional court matter by the amicus curiae of the court, the casual workers' advice office, where they, they conceded that in certain circumstances, um, that it might be in the public's interest mm. to disclose information, mm. um, but then the, the benefit is for the greater good, not necessarily just to benefit the employer
2: then the other thing which almost you wanted to have a take yeah, yeah, yeah. i was going to put something else but yeah I, Michael, go I, for it
1: I just wanted to add to what johnny just said now um i mean we must understand the dynamics of a strike you mm. know um you have a situation whereby you have the employer uh versus the employees perhaps or or the trade union um but you must also not forget forget the dynamics of having um People who are within the strike, who don't necessarily want to be uh, within the strike, or perhaps who are participants, who are who perhaps may be willing to come forward and say, listen, um, this and this happened, mm. uh, but they're scared. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the reality of strikes now are not as they were before. You get casualties, people
2: really... You think before they were not casualties?
1: <laughs> <laughs> but Michael, I think, I, think, I think currently it's gotten, it's gotten worse. Right. It's gotten worse. It's gotten to a point whereby for me to get the employer to fold, I need to make sure that it's as violent as possible. And the more violent it is, the more the employer will fold. So if, if you think about it, um, so for, for an innocent person sitting there, Who's, um, I'm saying I can't tell if I do tell my 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 family is at risk my life is at risk yeah. so all
2: of those and I still got to work with these people right I still got to work with these people because it's not it's not mm. pr- probably the only issue at play is not the threat of physical violence it's also mm. the threat of just being an outcast Says, you know yeah in yeah. yeah
1: one so so one would look at Um, those kinds of risks, yes, maybe if you look at the practical perspective from an employer, if you're saying, if the court is saying to me, look uh, from your side, protect this particular individual how do I do it? Mm. Move him somewhere else, do I relocate the whole family? How does it go from a practical perspective? But it kind of of, plays a a, a certain onus on the employer to at least try something as opposed to saying, ah, you were part of it I'll deal with you.
2: Right, but here's something else that (sighs) intrigued me greatly is Often if you are, as the employer want to accuse employees of wrongdoing, you bear the onus of proof. Is this not reverse onus? Is, is the onus not shifting on the employees? Because ultimately what the employer is doing by saying, come and tell me what happened or else I'm going to dismiss you. It's almost a saying, come and prove to me that you are not guilty of misconduct,
3: think that's a very valid point mm. that um that you're raising but i do think that the reciprocal duty of good faith yeah that that the court um but i mean has wh- wh- wh-
2: wh- 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 which I is greater you know i many. i i have a fiduciary duty to you as my employer mm. accepted great but there's a competing mm. duty i have a right not to self-incriminate mm. absolutely which is potentially um <laughs> i don't know but there's that there's that which is is founded at, at, at common law, but I'm sure if we looked at the constitution, it's probably there as well, because that's the essence of a fair trial. Um, but then there's also the, the common law of, you know, he who alleges must prove. Mm-hmm. And it would appear then with this derivative misconduct that all of that yields to to this fiduciary duty.
3: But I do think that those hurdles that I spoke of earlier, mm. um, if if those will be strictly enforced going forward, and I'm pretty sure they will, um, it, it does balance that out because I think it places a huge onus on the employer to to prove guilt on, on the part of the employee. I mean, if if you can't even prove that I was there,
2: but but, but I mean, I mean, let's take it like right this: the the, the the constitutional court judgment is probably perfect when it comes to somebody who was there and must tell but what if it's what if i am the one you are effectively saying i must come and prove i must come and prove to you your case not necessarily the observed there's two in the strike there would be two role players there'd be the role player that is the offender the the one that c- commits the misconduct. and then there's a the role player who's looking on and doing nothing yeah. No,
3: I think that, that could be a very valid argument, um, but still, if you go back to the reciprocal duty, yes, you need to come and give me information, but I need to give you something in return. So, I, I do think it's still up to the employee to determine if, if, um, if it will be worth his while, yeah, if you can put it yeah. that way.
2: Well, let's take a break, and when we come back, we we'll continue our discussion talking about strikes, labor law, and also the information and statistics around that. We're back after this.
1: The Law Report.
0: With Michael Mutwening, bell Kaya FM
2: 95.9. Welcome back. Uh, It's 19 minutes before 9 o'clock. I'm in discussion um, with my guest talking about strikes, labor law. Um, And if you have any question relating to any of these issues, do give us a call. The number is 086-00-00959. I'm joined in the studio by Mr. Deboho as well as uh, Jean de leone uh, both from Workforce Stuffing, as well as um, an economist uh, from uh, 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 she's her name is uh, Pili Sengoma from Threshold Capital. That's the that's the, that's the company. So I've got two scripts, so you'll forgive me. <laughs> uh, all right. So and um, w- 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 and I, I want to direct this question t- to you, uh, Miss Sangoma. Um, one wonders, you know, we talk about purchasing power parities, and that's what you spoke about in in the preamble to some of your answers. And and one thing that strikes me as very curious is, um, let's take for example a mine worker in 1970, <laughs> or a police officer in 1970, or, or whatever we can work with, and look at them today, starting a new job. So I'm fresh out of matric, and I'm starting this job. How do I fare in 2019 relative to somebody earlier years? You know are we still am i still able to do the same things that that individual was able to do mm-hmm. or or am i able to do more
0: yeah i mean look obviously we we've kind of like if comparatively speaking if you look at 1970 in 2019 mm-hmm. you're going to talk about you know there are a lot of changes Uh so we live in a you know constitutional democracy there's a bit of modernity in terms of our lifestyle so what you could afford then Uh, probably can afford even more but here's the catch always, it's always the fact that the pricing today actually is going to actually it's a leakage in terms of what you're able to earn because you have to pay much more higher than you used to pay in 1970. Indeed. Yes, so people are moving into urban centres, right? And uh, when you move to urban centres, you pay for everything, right? In comparison to if you'd live into semi-urban centre or in a rural area, you had paid you'd paid less. But also people are moving out of villages and rural and they're making cities as their lives. So it's,
2: but, it's, but I mean, it, even then in the 70s and 80s, there were cities and and, and, and I'm trying to get a... A value in today's mm-hmm. term, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. Um, growing up, for example, in Soweto, uh, as I did, um, uh, at some point in my life, at least for the first six years of it, um, you knew that Baba's next door traffic cop, and he's the man. He's like he's got the the big house. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's like that is the creme de la creme mm-hmm. of of the township, as it were. And I'm wondering whether the traffic office of today, starting out, can be In a big house, Um, and I say big house. If you don't know what big house (laughs) is,
0: no, no, I mean no. In fact, they can't. Actually, the point you're making is so important. They can, in fact, if you look at the public service workers, actually, yes, uh, I mean across. I mean, we'd normally call them as economists, that they're actually trapped into chronic poverty because one month they're out of it, they, in another month they're back yeah. because they're not only highly indebted, but also it's the fact that while the income they earn seems to be higher because it has probably two extra zeros, right? Yes. But comparatively speaking, that they can't afford in terms of their, their lifestyle. And in fact, I mean, it, it really... And when you think about it's it's their income, it's the family they support, for example. So so the dependency ratio is very important in the equation.
2: Has that increased? A lot. What A people lot. Well, and I hate this word, but I'm going to use it. Black tax? Of course.
0: I mean, it has a lot. And this is the most of the, because actually in 1970, where the difference was is that you would have people who would migrate into the cities, living their families, right? Living on average six to seven family members who would live in a homestead where they don't have to pay rent, right? And most of the things actually, it's linked to subsistence lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So there's really less that they pay for. But now people are moving into the city. So you pay for everything. You pay for property, for water, for electricity. Don't get me
2: started on the rates and taxes.
0: Exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. <laughs> so so in essence so 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 in essence, you know well, they might have been earning a lot, but yeah. actually they really because the dependency ratio and what makes even more the dependency ratio to increase, I think it's twofold. I think the first issue is that we've had an increase of high unemployment in South Africa. So a lot of the industries have really been shedding jobs for a number of reasons, I think per industry. And then the other one is that we've seen our GDP has shrunk in fact in the last quarter by three point two percent. The only sector that, that seemed to have been creating I mean a lot of jobs was agriculture. And I think it's probably linked to the fact that there's increase for demand but also we've had a very good uh, rain season but otherwise other sectors they actually sitting on the negative it's government that is creating jobs
2: so so and we know that w- how, why they've created jobs we know that it's it's extremely bloated
0: well I mean okay depending on where you come from, it has to be blasted because government has to be the employer of the last resort. When <laughs> citizens are unemployed, where should they go to, right? Yeah. Because citizens are the state. So in essence, when the different sectors are not able to kickstart and make an investment in the economy actually, and that's why government actually has the community works program and as an expanded works program and part of it, it would have the safety net in terms of social transfers. But however, what you would really want actually as an end state is where citizens are able to lead a productive life and that productive life is linked to how do you increase the budget of the industrial development, which is the economic cluster. Because part of it is that the government has to have a high appetite for risk in terms of investment. So, I mean, the, the to, I think the minister is likely to be delivering his uh, budget speech, so we're likely to see whether his allocation is increased. Because over the time, he's actually been sitting at less than 1%. Uh, 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 the minister, which minister? Which is the, the industrial um, TTI trade and in, 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 mm-hmm. in, in industry. And it's such a critical Department because it has to drive um, job creation and economic development in the economy but,
2: but I mean I, 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 I have a, a view which is not in contradiction with yours but education um, and, and skill creation yes. um, is is what I perceive to be very important something that I'm not sure we're doing a good enough job on
1: mm-hmm. if for
2: example you take you take India, China, they're leading tech. Mm-hmm. We talk about uh, the fourth industrial revolution, but there's very little action to support that talk. But perhaps yes. that's another conversation. Paul okay. from Davidson, good evening.
1: All right, good evening to you guys. Hello, Paul. I, I want to throw a kid among the pigeon.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> uh, m- union membership. Yeah.
0: The companies pay the unions, their members,
2: fees yes
0: why is it difficult for the unions to collect the the fees directly from from the members
1: if it's law
0: is that law still relevant
1: okay all right. that's for me i think yeah i'll listen to on the radio so there's there's a cat for you pigeon all right <laughs> 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 all right so until the Labor relations act section uh, 21 um Perhaps make provisions for an employer to perhaps collect. Uh, the union subscriptions, uh, but there's nothing that prevents the union from um, collecting the money directly from um, from the employees. Um, and if if there's any difficulty in terms of the employer transferring the money, there, there shouldn't be such. Uh, no, An honest no, employer should mm. not have issues that. in terms of uh, paying subscriptions. It's Try it like, for one month. Yeah, you'll get a you have a spark on your hands.
2: <laughs> you'll have a spark on your hands. Yeah, but, but isn't it, I, I'm not sure, um, I, Paul is not, is not with us anymore, I'm not sure where he's coming from, because if he's coming from a point of view of uh, this is important for the unions, this is something that would have been argued for by the unions. Certainly, an employer wouldn't care um, whether you deduct uh, whether you 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 know you get your subscriptions or not. In fact, if if it fell upon the employees to pay you, they know that you wouldn't be paid regularly, and probably there wouldn't be any unions in the country. Absolutely. So it's something that is for the benefit of unions but also in inverted commas for the employees absolutely absolutely yeah. but but I
3: think it, it, it's important for employers as well because it assists them to determine statistically what the union's representation is and and who are
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, mem- uh, members of that union and um you know it, to which extent the union should be engaged yeah. based on on their percentage representation
2: yeah yeah so <laughs> Let's talk about this ballot thing, and, and I know it, it, it became a little bit contentious. But I know it was something that has has been an argument at NetLac. It's been part of the discussions for many years. Where essentially, how the ballot system works is before, at least as it was debated at NetLac, before you strike, you need to make sure that all employees agree. Because previously, you'd have the secretary general of a union saying, "Actually, tomorrow is striking." Employees having no say having not been consulted in some instances, are now suddenly in the middle of a strike. Mm-hmm. And the ballot system had been such a topical issue at Ned Lake and elsewhere because of the concerns from business side saying, you know, this thing just happens with so much ease where ultimately employees are forced. And this is how we get this Dunlop case happening where mm. you, 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 you don't want to strike, but you end up being compelled to strike how is it so how 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 is it the ballot now supposed to work because i remember as it was argued every you needed to almost have elections so the issue is are we striking and then this many people say yes, and this many people say no. If you don't have a majority, then the strike doesn't proceed. Yeah. How, 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 how did the, the law that came into effect on the one January? Right. Um,
1: I don't have the specific details, but um, I think, Michael, you're taking it just a bit too far when you're saying the general secretary. I think the, what the law aimed to actually deal with here. I mean, before, is,
2: historically, that, you know, a possibly, union... Possibly, possibly, the, but, the union officials could tell you yes. as, at the factory... Mm. So I'd say, a striker," and that's how it used to yeah. play out. Yeah,
1: but I think the, the the biggest issue would be yes, maybe the unofficial or perhaps um, the the dominant group uh, within, because you'll have maybe a certain portion of employees who are perhaps pulling the others to say, "We are going on strike." No, but they got
2: union leadership. Yes. So there would be the leadership, which is essentially sure. Yeah. Sure. So they come and they say, "We are striking," yeah. and the difference between a ballot is you as now the worker so you're the guy that's pushing the the forklift and you and previously you were told tomorrow it's happening Mm. but what the ballot as it was argued was supposed to play is that the guy and the forklift would have a say yeah so 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 the ballot in
1: essence, um is actually designed to be done in secret Mm. and depending on the majority that comes out of the uh, voting process mm. um, would decide then as to whether we go on strike tomorrow or not mm. so that's the basic principle of the ballot it is there to perhaps cure the very same issue that you're saying whereby I don't want to strike but I find myself in a strike yeah. if the majority then says we strike then we go ahead yeah. so that's the basic essence and principle behind the,
2: um, uh, the ballot So, what is the answer? I I know, for example, the uh, payment uh, or salary uh, discrepancies between genders, between races. um, This was something of a a discussion. And I know the Department of Labor um, had an interest in this and they had some intervention. Tell us about it.
1: Um,
3: So the legal term for these disparities um, or what what we um, like to call it is equal work for um, equal pay Mm. Um, this can be seen in two contexts actually and um, I think it it might be relevant to just distinguish those two. Firstly, you've got the provisions of the Employment Equity Act, Mm. which says that no one can be discriminated against in terms of their remuneration and their benefits. And then the second aspect is in the the TAE space, temporary employment services or labor brokers, as they are more commonly known, whereby um, the labor broker employees shouldn't be treated on the whole not less favorable than the permanent employees Mm. of, of the clients. So, um, so the basic principles there is that people that perform the same or similar work should be treated equally, um, unless there is a justified reason to do so otherwise. Um, and uh, from a from a compliance perspective, the Department of Labour. Um, can be approached in that regard, and specifically in, in respect of non-compliance with national minimum wages, they they do come and conduct audits at the workplace and issue compliance orders where the um, employers must then comply to that. Um, if it's an unfair discrimination case, as such, that gets dealt with by the CCMA.
2: And and so so I mean, when we talk about equal work uh, for, uh, for equal pay for equal work, I- I- isn't there always? sort of a justification for that and, and barring the the obvious and patent sort of discriminate discriminatory cases where if I started, if I'm here for 30 years and, and you're you a newbie we're doing the same work, yeah but, you know, I got more experience or I've received in, in, in increases over time but also we could both start at the same time but we don't negotiate the same we don't come from the same Backgrounds, we don't offer the same value as individuals.
3: I think that's where these provisions come from: is mm. employees in an unequal bargaining position. One employee might be more desperate, if I can call it that, mm. than another employee, um, or, or might have better negotiation skills, or whatever the mm. case just So right. to balance
2: those it's, it's dynamics.
3: Absolutely, to balance those dynamics out. Yes.
2: All right. Let me thank all my guests, and thank you so much for. Um, um, tuning in to you the Afropolitan. my um, guest Debajo uh, Mual as well as uh, Jean Di Leoni from Work, uh, Work for Stuffing. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And uh, to my uh, other guest, Ms. Pili Sanko, Senior Economic Advisor with Threshold Capital, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And to you, the afro Yes. (laughs) (laughs) To you, the afro thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I hope you have yourself a good evening. I look forward to being with you again um, next Wednesday. Remember, all our shows are podcasts, so if you... Want to listen to the show again or refer a friend? um, Do you look out for our podcast? It's available tomorrow morning. From me and Michael. Rewinding Rewinding
0: Kaya FM on FM Rewind. Visit kayafm.co.za for more.